chapter 21, 1 Samuel. While you're turning there, um, this morning I, I read, I, I used to do this thing, you know, they say if you read five Psalms and one chapter of Proverbs every day that you can do the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs every month. And I used to do that, um, but I realized I was just like reading, to read five Psalms, you don't really absorb much. You know, you're like, because, you, you know, nobody has unlimited time. So you want to read five Psalms and a proverb, and it's like you're, you're almost uh, speed reading. So I, I just stopped doing that, and now I just do one. Um, and today today's Psalm was uh, Psalm 136. And uh, it's really short, but it's really deep. And it just, actually, it was 134. It just says this. It says, Behold, bless ye the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, which by night stand in the house of the Lord. And then it says, Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. The Lord that made heaven and earth bless you out of Zion. You know, and, and you almost like can read that and it's kind of like there's actually a few different songs that have been put to those words and, you know, you can almost just read over it like it's just an insignificant song, but it's so uh, so rich what it, what it actually is communicating. The key word uh, in the whole psalm is that word night. Right in verse one, it just says, uh, "Which by night stand in the house of the Lord." That that one word is what gives the whole psalm meaning, because in the Bible, the night always speaks of the season of darkness. You know, the time when you can't see, the time when there's the least vision, the time uh, when you're the most vulnerable, and we all go through nights. You know, in our in our Christian experience, where uh, it seems like God is far, He's distant. Uh, he God is light, and so there's no light. Where is God? And, and we go through those times, you know, and and it's during the night season when we're the most vulnerable. We're vulnerable to sin. We're vulnerable to uh, become discouraged, to turn away from God, to uh, go our own way, to kind of just take things in our own hands. Like all those things happen at night. And the psalm just gives three simple instructions about the night. If, if, and for anyone here, maybe you know, you're know you going through a night right now in your Christian life, a night experience. Um, you know, our, our tendency is to draw back from God. Well, God, I followed you and, and it led me to this. So I don't know if I can trust you. So here's what the psalmist just says, real simple. He says, number one, lift up your hands. It means pray. You know, strengthen Hebrews chapter 12. It says, wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down. It speaks of pray. Don't don't draw back from God. Draw into God. So lift up your hands. Pray. Second of all, in the sanctuary. The sanctuary speaks of the place where God's people gather together. Don't don't forsake fellowship. Be in fellowship. And then number three, it says, and bless the Lord. Give thanks. If you're in a night season here right now, give thanks. Don't don't draw back from God. Don't don't curse God in your heart. Don't get cynical or sarcastic in your mind. Give thanks to God. And here's why. Close of the psalm. The Lord that made heaven and earth. He's the creator of all things, including the night. Will bless you out of Zion. It's whatever night you're going through right now. He's working it for blessing. And then we're called to trust him in it. So just a powerful thing. It was in my heart to just kind of uh, share that with you guys uh, um, this morning as we get going. But First Samuel chapter 21, as we um, continue in the life of David. And uh, we're looking at the shaping of a man, the way that God harvests 
a lump of coal out of a mine and turns it into a diamond. And, uh, and we see God doing this in, in David's life. And where we left David at the end of chapter 20, uh, he was at the, the lowest of the lows, as it were. Everything is being stripped away from David piece by piece, and he's just being left uh, in complete isolation, uh, completely barren. He's going through his own night in uh, and, and his walk with God at this time, he's lost his counselors, he's lost his friends, Jonathan. Uh, he saw Jonathan probably for the last time at the end of the last chapter, the one person in the world that he could uh, fully trust and that fully understood who he was. He no longer has access to Jonathan. Um, he's lost access to his wife. He had married Saul's daughter-in-law, and now to see her again, would be a, um, a, a threat to his life. And so he's lost access to his wife. Um, he'll have a brief encounter with his extended family, his brothers and, and his parents. Um, but even them, he's going to, in the next chapter, chapter 22, he's going to have to take them to Moab, a foreign country, just to protect them because uh, of the danger that he's in because of Saul. And, uh, and God is just bringing him to this place where it's just David and God. And there's nothing else. And, and it, it's so essential uh, for David's future that he have that. And so God is bringing him there um, in spite of the pain that it's costing him. Um, and now as we come to chapter 21, we come to a very dismal part of the preparation process that every single one of us uh, must go through. I mean, we, we go through different things. For David, he was going to be a king, and there was a list of things that God needed him to have. But everyone, every man... Uh, that walks with God must encounter chapter 21 and what David goes through in chapter 21. Um, and what that is, is the discovery of self. And it is a dark day uh, when a man looks in the mirror and he sees what he truly is. No, nothing covering. Uh, he can't lie to himself. There's no shade. There's no mascara. Uh, manscara. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's, uh, there, there's, um, but, 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 but to see what's, what's on the inside and to, to have to look at it, to have to see what we are uh, in and of ourselves. And it's what David is going to see as we come now into chapter 21. A human life is, is an interesting thing. You know, we come into this world, we're born uh, into it, and, and we're immediately nurtured and, and pampered by parents. We're, uh, we're cared for, we're fed, we're clothed, we're cleaned. Uh, every need is attended to. Every time we cry, there's somebody right there to do our bidding immediately. Uh, we're praised, we're cuddled, we're cooed. Um, you know, everybody tells us how, how wonderful and cute we are. You know, and it's the, That's our very first experience in life, is just that we get everything uh, just handed right to us. And then as we grow up, up. We come into being a toddler and then into being a child. We're encouraged, we're flattered, we're developed, we're complimented uh, by our parents and by our teachers. Our natural abilities begin to unfold. We discover um, our athleticism, um, our talents, our artistic abilities and capabilities, you know, our strengths, and, and, the, and these things in us begin to unfold. And as you know, the, 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 the grown-ups in our life see it, they, they breathe into it, they speak into it, they, they, uh, they coach us along. In, in the thing, and we, we develop in, in these gifts and these talents. We're told that we're talented, that we're gifted, that we're intelligent, that we're handsome. You know, we're built up. I mean, of course, there's other things that are mixed in with that, but that's that, that's the part that we uh, that feeds us. You know, we live on on that encouragement that we're given as we grow. 
We learn very quickly along the way uh, what it means to be competitive. We, we, we begin to um, understand that we live in a competitive world, that we need to be the best, that we need to outrun, that we need to outdo and outperform uh, uh, others in this world. We are taught from a young age. We go to gym class and we uh, have races and we're measured and we're evaluated. And so we learn this, this whole thing of competition and uh, we want to be bigger and faster and stronger and smarter. And we learn that in this world we need to strive to succeed and we begin to measure ourselves against other people. And there's this, there's this as we even were, were saying at the beginning today, there's this kind of this upward surge as we go through life as we're, we're seeking to elevate ourselves to the absolute best of our ability. And so this is our development. This is how we come into this world and we understand life. And so we're, we're moving upward. We're, we're being encouraged. We're growing but at the same time, there's this emptiness that resides inside of us. And we all, if you're here, you're born again, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You say, well, what is the purpose of life? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Why is all this here? What is the sense behind any of it? And so, you know, while all these things are happening, simultaneously there's this emptiness, this vacuum that exists on the inside because although we're alive in the flesh, we're spiritually void. We're spiritually dead. And so, so it's this, this kind of dichotomy of experience. We're seeking to be the best, but we understand somewhere underneath that that there's something very much missing within our life. And then by some miracle, we get saved. You know, and I'm speaking, of course, now to, to, to those of us that have. You know, we, God somehow by the Holy Spirit reveals our condition to us. Uh, we, 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 we hear the gospel. We believe it. We come to Christ and, and, and he moves in. And this, be, this work of being born again begins within our life. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, uh, purpose becomes magnified. We have light. We have vision. We have a new strength, a spiritual strength. There's a gifting that comes from God that begins to uh, um, show itself within our lives. We know who he is. And there's a new confidence. We, we would call that peace. Wherein, once we got saved, we lay our head on the pillow at night, and, and there's an answer to all of those things that used to be unsettled, and there's a completion to what used to be completely empty. We're born again. And so we join a church. We get around other Christians. And as we're new believers, many of us have experienced it, older Christians come alongside of us, and they treat us as Christians much in the same way that our parents did when, when we were young. They encourage us. They speak into our lives. They, uh, they tell us they're praying for us. They, um, they give us wisdom and the things that they were cared for and nurtured spiritually were encouraged. And then God begins to use our lives because he's given to every one of us gifts in some capacity. And so God will begin to use us. We'll speak a word to someone, and God will touch it, and, and we'll, we'll speak into someone's life. And we'll, or we'll lead someone to Christ, or God will give us an opportunity to serve, or go on a mission trip, or, 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 or lead a Bible study, or, or teach a Sunday school class, something. He uses us in some way, and we begin to experience uh, the power of God flowing through our lives. And there's, there's, there's something so satisfying and so incredible about that. You know, we saw that in the life of David. You know, we, we see Samuel dump the oil on him, and all of a sudden there's this vitality. He kills a lion and a bear with his bare hands. Whoa. <laughs> I just delivered a sheep from, from destruction. I just killed a lion and a bear. He stands before Saul and sees Goliath in the valley, and he's just filled with this confidence. He knows inside that he can't lose this battle. 
He goes down, he sees the giant fall, he cuts off his head, and I mean, he's just a man that's on the rise. And everyone's now speaking into his life. David has slain his tens of thousands, you know, and there's, there's just this, this, this power that's filling this young man in his early Christian experience. And, and we, we kind of can relate to that in some way, though maybe, maybe not, you know, on the same scale as David did in the whole thing. But what can happen is that we can begin to think, wow, I'm something, I, I'm, 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 I'm something. God, God is with me. God loves me. God has gifted me. God is with me. And, and, and you know, you can just see it even in, in, in a young David. You know, they're walking through Jerusalem, hearing the song of the women. Like, wow, David has killed his tens of thousands. And this is so good. And, you know, we experience it ourselves. I know for me personally, you know, when the Lord came into my life at the age of 19, God very soon in my life began to use me just in small things. I I had a love for his word from the very first day. I couldn't get enough of the Bible. And I was just going to this little youth Bible study. It was sponsored by Youth for Christ, and there were six kids that came to it, and it was in my hometown, and I knew one of the other people that were leading it. So I just started going to this group, you know. And I said to him, I said, listen, I've seen the power of the word. What if we just start a a little Bible study and instead of just doing banana relays with these kids, what if we taught them the Bible for 20 minutes each week? And, and, And they said, well, that's a great idea. Why don't you do it? And I was like... Okay, you know, I'll try, you know, and so we did the, we took the book of John and we started just going through the book of John and within just a matter of like a month or two, the group went from six kids to 30 kids and, and kids started coming and they were getting saved. They were giving their lives to Christ and I'm thinking, man, Lord, you're using me, the power of your word. And then Georgia, who wasn't my wife yet at that time, she was still in college. She said, hey, would you consider coming down, coming up to share your testimony here? We're having a, an outreach, and they want three different people, and they want a new convert. They want someone who was not a Christian that, and now is. And would you come share your testimony? I said, sure, I'll come. And I was so scared. I didn't know what to expect when I was there. And I... I you know, practice this thing. I drove four hours to her college. I rehearsed it seven times in the car on the way there. I was going to, I was so scared, you know, and, and in the, in the seat sitting before I have to get up in front of this uh, room full of people. And it was, it wasn't a room like this. It was like a miniature theater, you know, and it's full of these students and I had to get up there and, and I, and no, no podium, no stand. I just have the microphone. I have to talk. And I just remember when, when I stood there in front of the people, the calmness that came over me and then the confidence to be able to share and then to, to tell the story and have it come out better than any of the times that I tried it in the car. And then, you know, to be told after the event was over a couple of days later that six people responded uh, and, and just filled out, filled out on the card that they wanted to know more about Christ you know, you know, and the whole thing. And, 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 you, and, and, and then you have people coming and saying, wow, you know, you might have a calling on your life. God's going to do something with you. And, and you begin to think, wow, Lord, this is awesome, this life that you've called me into. And then somewhere along the way, God says, now I'm going to show you something. I want you to see what you are. I want you to see who you are, Mr. Anointed. Mr. Special, I'm going to show you a thing or two. And then what God does in his way, and he does it with every single one of us, is he begins to withdraw, not his presence, 
because he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He doesn't withdraw. What he withdraws is our awareness of his presence. And he lifts away the gifting and he lifts away the part of us that is only him and none of us. And he does that so that we can see what we are apart from him. And I want you to think about what David has been up to this time. I mean, he has been a man who is nothing but blessed. He is commended by the servants of Saul as being a mighty man of valor, as being a man who's a cunning musician, who's a warrior, who's wise. He's a man who saw Goliath fall. He's a man who killed 200 Philistines and brought their foreskins so that Saul would release his daughter to him. Nothing but good in the life of David that we've seen thus far. And now I want, in the backdrop of all of that, I want you to see the man that's before us in chapter 21. And it's a completely different story. (laughs) We see here in this man, David, on his way to becoming the king, God doing something. So notice in chapter 21, what we have in this young man, David. It says, Then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. So David flees Gibeah, uh, and, and, and which was where Saul's palace was and the place in Nabioth where he had met with uh, Jonathan. And now he comes to the last place that he can think that he might receive some help, and that is to the priest who is supposed to be a neutral party, and he comes to this man, uh, Abim, Ahimelech. Now, the interesting thing about this man, uh, Ahimelech, first of all, to understand, is that he is a son of Eli. Now, do you guys recall what God said would happen to the descendants of Eli, Hunter? That they would be destroyed. That's right. They're going to be cut off. But this man, Ahimelech, a descendant of Eli, is still occupying the priesthood. The second thing to understand about this man, Ahimelech, is that this is a changed name. This is the first time that this man, Ahimelech, is known by this name, Ahimelech. Prior to this, he was called Ahiah. When he was with Saul back in chapter 15 and 16, when Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines, and and it says that Saul inquired of Ahiah, the priest at the ark, you know, what they should do, the whole thing. Ahiah was his name previously, and interestingly, Ahiah means brother of Jehovah. That had been his identity prior to this chapter. But in this chapter, and from here on out, he's called Ahimelech, same man different identity. Do you know what Ahimelech means? Ahimelech means brother to the king. He went from brother of Jehovah to brother of the king. And it's significant because we see that this man Ahiah, now Ahimelech, who was called to be a servant of Jehovah, has in many ways respects become a servant of the king. A, a, a servant to Saul, as it were, if you would, and it's going to cause him problems as we go. But notice what it says concerning Ahimelech. It says that he was afraid at the meeting of David, and he said unto him, Why are you alone and no man with you? Notice that he's afraid when David comes to him. Now, we're not told why Ahimelech is afraid, but it should pique our interest that he is afraid. Because why would Ahimelech be afraid at the coming of David? We're going to learn that he does not know at this point, that Saul is seeking David's life. So it stands to reason that he's not afraid of David because of, you know, 
being a part of this conflict that exists between David and Saul. What he does know about David is that David is a very close man to Saul in that he's his son-in-law and that he's one of Saul's chief generals, that he occupies a seat very close to Saul. So why would Ahimelech be afraid? I suggest, and, and, and most likely it's because he knows the kind of man that Saul is and he's intimidated by the drama that surrounds Saul. Why isn't he in the place where Saul is? Why is he in Nob? He probably wanted to create some distance. You ever been around a narcissist? <laughs> you ever been around a person like Saul that we've seen unfold in the scripture? The safest place with a narcissist is far away. <laughs> and it's quite possible that that's the reason for the fear that Ahimelech has in this situation. He sees David, he associates him immediately with Saul, and he thinks, oh my, what now? <laughs> you know? So he sees David, he says, why are you alone and no man with you? And so David now says to Ahimelech, the priest, he says, the king has commanded me a business and has said unto me, let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send you and what I have commanded you. And I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. So he answers Ahimelech's question with two lies. Essentially, the first lie is that the king sent me here on confidential kingdom business. And he lies to Ahimelech. He does not tell him the true nature of his business. He knew that the, the information would get back to Saul. He knew that Ahimelech was in Saul's pocket. And he did this to protect his own life. Probably a move that any one of us would make. And he tells this lie not thinking that much harm will come from it. This is just pure self-preservation. It's a white lie. Nothing bad will come of it. Uh, and, and he gives this lie then uh, to the king. The second lie that he kind of tells is that I'm not alone. He says, my servants I've sent to such and such a place. They're running little errands and it appears as though I'm alone, but really, you know, it's, it's a whole entourage of us uh, that's here. And he gives this lie to the king. Beware of the white lie. Because David thinks right here in this instance that this is a harmless untruth or a bending of the facts just for the sake of simplicity or ease or self-preservation or whatever it might be, and he thinks that this will be of very little consequence. This is actually going to be of huge consequence. Eighty-five priests are going to lose their lives because of David's lie, because David lies here in this little instance. Mark my words, men. There is not a lie, a white lie, an untruth, that we give in this type of context that will not come back to bite us in some way greater than what we had ever anticipated would be. He lies and, oh boy. Anyways, we'll see what happens. He says in verse 3, here's David's question, a request of the, of the priest now. He says, now therefore, what is under your hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or what there is present. Now, I want you to just consider where David is at right now and, and what brings him to this place of going to the priest and begging for food. Here's a man who is a descendant of Ruth and Boaz. 
He's from a chief family in Bethlehem, which is kind of like being brought up in Bedford Hills or Chappaqua. You know, it's, this is like where the rich people dwelt. And this was the way that David was raised, a prominent man from a prominent family. His last job was that he was one of the senior advisors and senior generals, the chief of staff for Saul. You know, this was his last job. This is a man who's known nothing but success and silver spoons his entire life. And at this point, he's been reduced to going to the local church and begging for bread from the local food pantry. And you can almost read over it like, okay, you got any bread here? You got any food? But put yourself in his shoes for a minute. And if you were to go from one seat you know, silver spoons, to where now the only way that you can even get food so that you can eat, and it's your only hope, is to go to a soup kitchen and beg for bread. That's a big step down. And that's where David's at at this point, where he's got to go and he's got to ask the priest for food in order to eat. And now he's denied, verse 4, denied partially. It says that the priest answered David and he said, well, there really is no common bread under my hand. I've really got no food, no money, no provision to give you, but there is the hallowed bread or the holy bread, the show bread. Part of the temple um, or tabernacle ritual is that once weekly, they would bring seven loaves of bread and they would set them on the table of show bread in the tabernacle before the Lord. And it was it was consecrated. And then after the seven days were up, the priest would take that bread and it would be food for him and he would replace it with seven fresh loaves. And so the priest says, well, I don't have any common bread here. All we've got is the show bread that's there in uh, the tabernacle. And, and then the priest says, well, if the young men have kept themselves at least from women, I mean, if they're not ceremonially unclean, I suppose, you know, you're David, I could give you this bread. And David answered the priest and said unto him, well, of a truth, women have been kept from us for about these three days. David's thinking, that's the last thing on my mind right now. (laughs) uh, No, I haven't been with a woman for three days. I've been hoping to live through the last three days. I've been sitting by the rock of Ezal, seeing what's going to happen with my life for the last three days. You know, certainly not with women. (laughs) That's true. I can, I don't have to lie about that. He says, since I came out and the vessels of the young men are holy. And David says, and the bread is in a manner common. In a way it's common bread, though it were sanctified this day in a vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread for there was no bread there except the show bread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in, in the day that it was taken away. And so basically David is given five loaves of seven day old bread uh, now as his provision. And so here, here's David in this whole thing. And then it tells us there in verse seven, it says, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. And so David goes into this thing, and he sees here this man, Doeg, who's not even an Israelite. He's an Edomite. And he's there in in the, the city. We don't know why, other than we find out later that this is providence. It's part of God's 
process of getting the sons of Eli out of the priesthood. But he's there for some reason being detained. And we see this man Doeg again and we find out that he is the scum of the earth. But he happens to be there and he happens to be one of the chief servants of Saul. He's the chief herdsman, uh, that who, the man who's over all of Saul's livestock and all of Saul's uh, uh, you know, animals and the whole thing. And he's there and he hears this whole thing. Now, we don't hear anything else more about Doeg here except that he was there that day. And here's why it's significant. Do you remember back in chapter 18 when David was a man on the rise? Four times in that chapter, it talks about the wisdom of David. It says that David behaved himself wisely, first of all. Then a few verses later, it says that David behaved himself wisely in all that he did. Then a few verses later, it says that he behaved himself very wisely And then at the end of the chapter, it says that he behaved himself more wisely than all the other servants of Saul. I mean, it's highlighted over and over and over and again how much discretion, how much discernment, how much wisdom David operated within in everything that he did. He was flawless. He never made a mistake. He never said the wrong thing in the presence of the wrong person. He never misjudged or miscalculated an action that would somehow come back on him for harm. Everything he did was perfect wisdom. And now he does something that is incredibly foolish. And later on, he's going to come back and he's going to kick himself. And he's going to say, I should have known better. I knew, I knew, somewhere inside, I knew that that was going to come back and bite me. The fact that Doeg was there. He knew who he was and he knew it. You say, wow, for a man who was so wise, so sharp, how is it that he can make such an error as to expose himself in this way in the presence of Doeg? He's going to bring word back to Saul. You must wonder, the wisdom that God had given to David, the wisdom that David had, where is it now? It's not there. You wonder, is this borrowed wisdom? Is this something that maybe David didn't own? Maybe it was something that was God's. And so he, uh, uh, Doeg there. Well, then in verse 8, it says, Then David said unto Ahimelech, he said, And is there not here under my hand, uh, under thine hand, spear or sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required uh, haste. So David now says to the king, he says, hey, listen, uh, by the way, no weapon with me right now. You wouldn't happen to have a spear or a sword or anything like that handy. You know, you know, part of me, when when I hear this, it makes me want to like, you know, take my Bible and just turn it upside down like this and be like, where's David? Is he in there? You know, what what, what happened? What happened to the man who, who looked at a nine foot something giant? And he said to him, you come at me with a sword and with a shield and with a spear. But I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts whom you have defied. What happened to the man who when Saul came to him and said, here, take my shield and my sword and my armor. You can't go against a man like this without weaponry. And David took the sword in his hand. He took the shield and he said, you know, this isn't mine. I haven't proved any of this stuff. I I can't use this. Like, this isn't me. This isn't how I fight. You know, it wouldn't work. You know, I, I do things with my hands. I do things with my sling. That's where my strength is. 
what, who, well, David, you want a sword? Like you've never wanted a sword. And now you want a sword. Now you want to rely on things that you never had to rely upon in the past. Isn't it amazing, men, when we're not trusting in God, the things that we'll trust in, the things that we'll rely upon? Things that have never been of any use to us at all in the past. They've never helped us in any way. If we look at the victories in our life, it's the victories in our life aren't because we had money or a good job or a degree or an education or the swords that make this world success what it is. It's never been those things. But when we're not trusting in God, the things that we'll look to are the things that we'll think are necessary for our protection. Now, I love God. Because you ever have God just poke you when you're not where you're supposed to be? He just does something and you just know <laughs> that it's from him. Listen, <laughs> listen to the, the priest's response in verse 9. It says that the priest said, well, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you slew in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Hey, David, remember that sword that was useless against you? <laughs> that's here you you could have that one if you want it's been sitting here since i mean you didn't take it then when when it was in your hand and after you used it to kill you know take off goliath's head you dedicated it to the lord you laid that sword up to be put in the place of remembrance before the lord you know but, but you could take it again if you want you know in the whole thing and notice david he says David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. And so David now takes this, this sword that he never needed before, but now somehow he thinks he needs, and he goes his way. And now watch David, this wise young man full of discretion. Verse 10, it says, And David arose, and he fled that day for fear of Saul. So notice it's not out of fear of God but it's out of fear of Saul. He's afraid of man. The proverb says, the fear of man is a snare. In Isaiah chapter 50, I think it's chapter 50, right around verse 4, it says that, um, it says, who, God says concerning his people, he says, who are you, O Jacob, that you should be afraid of a man that will die? God says, why? You don't need to fear man. We don't need to be those that fear men. But David is afraid. And it happens to us, doesn't it? It's part of what we are. But here, David, it's being exposed that David is afraid of Saul. It says that out of fear of Saul, David fled. And notice how afraid David is of Saul and how much his life feels threatened by it. That it says that he went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, I just want you to think about this for one minute. Okay, Gath is one of the five cities of the Philistines that was there, you know, along the Mediterranean and the, that, that corner of Israel there. Five cities of the Philistines, Gath, one of the five cities of the Philistines. There is not at this time in Israel's history a single family amongst the Philistines that hasn't lost someone to David. <laughs> that David isn't responsible for their death. Anybody remember where Goliath was from? Uh, Gath. Gath. That's right. Gath. He was the champion of Gath. He was the warrior of Gath who was also killed by David. And now David is so afraid of Saul and so 
you know, outside of trusting in God, that he takes Goliath's sword strapped to his belt, marches into Gath, into the palace, and he thinks that he's going to get a job there and that, that the king of Gath is just going to, hey, oh, da David? Oh, who's David? Okay, well, we don't really know who you are, but you look like you can fight. You know, we'll, we'll put you to work right away. You know, that's like wearing an ISIS flag or something and going into Lebanon or something. It's just, it's crazy what you see David doing here at this point. It's insane in the whole thing. And notice what happens when he gets there. Verse 11. It says, And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Now, David wasn't the king of the land. But his exploits had been so well known in the Philistine cities that he was taken as the king. His, his exploits were far beyond those of Saul. Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David laid up these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. David realizes, oh my goodness, they actually know who I am here. <laughs> and he and he wakes up in this thing and he realizes I am in I have put myself in the lion's den. I have walked dead smack directly into the most dangerous position that I have ever been in my entire life. They know they know who I am. Men understand something. If you have given your life to Jesus Christ and you belong to him, you are known in heaven and in hell. Bottom line, your name is written in heaven. The Bible says that the angels rejoice when one person repents and gives their life to the Lord. And you are well known. The Bible says that one day we will know even as we are known. And the implication is that we are known. We're well known. And we're not only known in heaven, we're also known in the kingdom of darkness that we were rescued from. In the book of Acts... The Bible tells us there that there were seven sons of a man named Sceva. They were Jewish exorcists. They were not saved men. They were Jews, but they would go around casting out demons. And they came upon a certain place where there was a, a man who was demon-possessed. And they came to this demon-possessed man, and seeking to cast the demon out, they said, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, we adjure you to come out of the man. And the demon, the demonized man, looked at these seven sons of Sceva and he laughed. And these were his words. He said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And it says that the demon-possessed man rose up, attacked the seven sons of Sceva and left them running away, beaten and naked. They were powerless against him. But did you hear the words that the demon spoke? He said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? They feared the name of Jesus, and they respected the name of Paul. They certainly absolutely knew who he was, not afraid of one who was unsanctified, not born again. Know this, that if you're born of God, if the Holy Spirit of God lives in your heart, you cannot go back into the world because you're discouraged or you're running from God or you think that's where you're going to find refuge and think that you're going to be unknown there. The Bible says that the world is at enmity with God. 
Friendship with the world is enmity with God. The two kingdoms are contrary one to another. And for you and I to be filled with God and yet to backslide and go back into the world is a very dangerous place to be because you cannot hide the colors of Christ in you no matter how far you've walked away from God. And David walks directly into the enemy palace here thinking this is the only chance I've got left. I'm going back to the world. I'm going to Philistine country. I'm going to get a job there. I'll do what I have to do. I've got to survive. And he thinks he can hide. And he can't hide for one minute. They know who he is. And notice what he has to resort to now to get out of the situation. It says in verse 13, it says that he changed his behavior before them and he feigned himself mad in their hands and scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. So he starts acting insane, like he's like a wild beast, scratching on the door, making funny faces, drooling all over himself. He's pleading insanity. That's what he's doing in in, in a sense. In those days, there was a custom that if a person was mad or a person was psychotic in this, in this sense, that that person was possessed by a demon. And if you were to torment or wound that person, then they believed that those demons would then turn on you. And it was, in a way, it was pleading safety for David because he knew if he was madman, no one would do him any harm. It was kind of like a Hail Mary, I need to get out of the situation move. And it works. Verse 15. He says, have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Achish says, I don't, I don't need any more insane people. I'm in government. <laughs> Please, just take this man. Get him out of here. I don't want, I don't want him around me. Um, get him out of here. And so uh, they, 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 they take David out and they throw him out. And it says, we're just going to go through five verses of chapter 22 because we've got to get through uh, David's um, self-discovery here. But it says that David departed from thence and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. Essentially, in chapter 21, David makes three, three big mistakes, three big errors. Number one is the lie that he told to Ahimelech uh, that's going to cost these men their lives. Um, the second one, the second mistake that David makes is that he, he, he does this thing, going to Ahimelech, in the presence of Doeg, who's going to use it for evil. And then the third mistake that David makes in this um, chapter is that he goes to Gath. He resorts to the king of Gath, um, and it's something that's going to haunt him reputationally for the rest of his life. I mean, for, for the rest of his kingship, he's going to look back on this, and he's going he's to you know, see the king of Gath, and he's going to know that he resorted to him, uh, and he's going to have this instance in his mind. He makes some big mistakes here in this chapter. And, and what this chapter reveals to us is what we do when we're left to ourselves. When we're left to ourselves, what do we do? We do the best we can. And the Bible says that we can, of ourselves, do nothing. The Apostle Paul said in, uh, in the book of Romans, he said um, that, that in me, he said that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. Jesus said that the flesh profits nothing. 
And if God were to leave us to ourselves for one minute, all we would do is just, ha- we would have train wreck after train wreck after train wreck. And that's, what, that's the road that David's on now. He's just going from one frying pot into the next fire. He's going back and forth in, in all of this thing. And in our flesh, we can do absolutely nothing. So notice what David does now. He goes to the cave of Adullam. He leaves and he finds a cave to live in. Now, that's that's an extremely humbling place, isn't it? To, where are you living these days? Oh, uh, <laughs> cave. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, I don't really I have a, I have a P.O. box. don't really have a mailbox, you know, <laughs> but I have a P.O. box, you know, someplace you could reach me and the whole thing. But amazing things in the Bible happen in caves. It was in the cleft of a rock or a cave that the glory of God was revealed to Moses, that God passed by and declared his name before him. It was a cave where God revealed himself to Elijah, the prophet, when Elijah was discouraged and thought that God had left him and that there was no more work for him to do. It was there that God met him. It was a cave where the resurrection took place. Jesus in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, where where, where death was literally brought back to life. And it was a cave where Jesus was revealed for the first time after the resurrection to a couple of women that had come to uh, adorn the body with spices. And, um, and, and there Jesus revealed himself to Mary in the cave. And here it's the cave of Adullam where God is going to begin now to rebuild this man, David, who has been broken down. I want you to think just for a minute. What would David have turned out like if he never had these experiences? I mean, can you, can you just imagine David, say, say he ascends to the throne, um, and, and you could even say that it took time. He had to wait for Saul to die, but he never goes through these experiences. And so you see David on his horse, and you see David wearing his crown, and he's, he's the king, and he's well-established, and he's a good man. He's being used of God. But there's a young man in his administration, and he sees fear in the face of that young man. And what does David, never going through these experiences, think in his heart or say concerning a young man, a young soldier with fear? Something that probably all of us have heard. When I was your age, <laughs> when I was your age, we, didn't, we weren't afraid of our enemies. I went out against a giant with a sling and a stone, and I didn't even care if I had a sword or a shield. We had faith and we trusted in God. What happened to this generation? Right? We still hear it. When I was your age, we didn't complain. We walked to school. We didn't have rides or video games. We went uphill both ways in four feet of snow, and we were, glad, we were thankful, you know. It's, it's natural. But what David needed to see is that all of what he was, he was because of God, not because of himself. He needed these experiences. He needed to know what it was like to be afraid. He needed to know what natural human reaction is when someone is chasing you and seeking after your life. He needed to know what what people do when they don't have money or resources or family to turn to. So that he'd never look down on a poor person and say, look at them just taking handouts. They're They're living on handouts. Look at the way they live. He would always be confronted with the fact that he did the same thing. I know why people do this. Because I had to do this. He would never look down on someone that had, had to take medication because of something that they're going through for, for you know in their life that they don't understand. David would understand and know what that's like. He would look at people that turn their back on God because they're discouraged. And he would look at them with compassion and not condemnation or judgment because he knew what it was like to do that himself. 
David had to see himself in order to be a man who could rightly represent and reflect the Lord. He had to know it. Now he's in the cave, and this is going to be home for a while for David, but it's the place where God is going to begin to rebuild this man that he has torn down. It says that all his brethren and all his father's house heard that he was there. They went down there to him. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him. Do you know why those are the people that come to David? Because God has prepared David to be able to handle those people now. David knows what it's like to be discontented. He knows what it's like to be distressed or oppressed. He knows what it's like to be in debt. He's now living that. And it says, they gathered themselves to him and he became a captain over them and there were with him about 400 men. And David went thence to Mizpah of Moab. So he leaves the borders of Israel and he said to the king of Moab, let my father and my mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you till I know what God will do for me. Do you see faith beginning to rise up in this man, David, again? In the last chapter, he would have gone to the king of Moab and he would have stayed there. But at this point, he's realizing, no, I can't stay here. He could have. He, his great-grandmother was a Moabitess. He had a reputation. He had rapport amongst them. His family's going to seek refuge there and find it. But David realizes at this point, no, I, I, can't, I can't stay here. I've got to go back. God's got something for me. There's life on the other side of mistakes. And he says in verse 4, And he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the while while David was in the hold. And now verse 5, our last verse this morning. It says, And the prophet Gad said unto David, So David is now visited by a prophet. The first time God comes, sends word to David, since the, the stone of Ezal back in chapter 20. And notice what he says. He says, Abide not in the hold, Depart and get thee into the land of Judah. Judah was where David was from. It's where the kingdom under David would be established at one point in the future. He says, get thee into Judah. And so David departed and came into the forest of Hereth, which was in the borders of Judah. Do you know what Judah means? Praise. Say it again. Praise. praise. Judah means praise. That's right. That's why Judah always went out first in the battles. The tribe of Judah always led because you always go forth with praise, praise. And what the prophet Gad is saying to David, no more cave, get back to praise. Lift up the hands, get back to God. Strengthen your hand in him, turn back to him. Turn to Psalm 131 and we close. It's a very short Psalm, don't worry. I want you to see what happened to David through this experience of what took place in this part of his life. It's huge. It's huge. Because every one of us is going to be in a position where we have to see ourselves. We're going to have to see what we are apart from God, what we do. See what we do when we don't have the boldness of God or whatever he puts into our life. Notice what David says. Do you see Psalm 131? What's the heading? Song of, David. Song of Degrees of David, right? This is authored by David. David wrote this psalm. He says this. He says, Lord, 
My heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. My heart isn't puffed up and proud. My eyes aren't lofty. They're not looking at, they're not looking for big things. He says, neither do I exercise myself in great matters. In other words, I don't imagine Exercise myself means to imagine for myself great things. I don't see myself as some great warrior. I don't see myself as becoming the king of the whole world or or anything more than what you've made me to be. I don't exercise myself in great matters or in things that are too high for me. I recognize, God, that I am a man and, and that my ceiling, the ceiling of my achievement is where you set my ceiling to be. And I don't I don't think or wish for myself to be one inch higher than what you've ordained for my life. This is where I'm at right now, Lord. And here's why David is there. Notice in verse two, he says, surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned from his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. And you say, well, what is the comparison? Like, why does David liken himself in this context to a weaned child? Do you know why? Because do you know what what a weaned child realizes? Is that everything that he has had up until this weaning process has come from my mother. I am the recipient or have been the recipient of pre-digested strength. She produced it and I received it. That's everything I had. And what David is testifying in the psalm is this, is that God, I recognize 100% fully that everything that I ever have comes from you. That when I stood before the lion and the bear and took them out with my bare hands, it was you and not me. That was borrowed strength. When I stood before Goliath, that was borrowed strength. That was favor of God. When I had wisdom that excelled all the wisdom of the servants of Saul, that was wisdom that was given to me by God, that was produced by you. Everything that I had going for me in my life was yours. And it wasn't until that was stripped away and I was left to provide for my own that I realized how void and vacant I was of anything good. And David says, now I understand. I have quieted myself. I have become like a wean child. I can only be what you've called me to be and I can be nothing more. And he concludes by saying, let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. That's where our hope is to be. The outcome of self-discovery in our lives, once we see ourselves for what we are, is that we recognize that everything good about us comes from God and nothing from ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, the Apostle Paul, he said this. He said, do not boast concerning the things that you have, your gifts, your talents, your resources. He says, for what do you have that has not been given to you? Great question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. What do you have that hasn't been given to you? Don't ever look at yourself as better than anyone else. Because in one instant, God can take away the gifts and talents that we have. And he can show us what we are apart from him. Self-discovery is huge. It hurts. It's ugly. It smells. (laughs) But it's so necessary. So good for us. Father, we just thank you this morning for your word. Help us, Lord. Help us. Teach us. 
Remind us. Season us. Strengthen us. Purify us. Wean us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.